Chairman Powell has said it again and again, higher, longer. Interest rates will be higher, longer than just about anybody on Wall Street is guessing at right now. And I tend to think that's true because the reason we had near zero inflation has disappeared. It's called China. Once more onto the breach, dear friends. Let's fill the wall up with our English dead. It, it, I'd like to talk just a little bit about what, as I've been reading, the things that may be causing inflation. Oh, all right. Well, we got another question on it, so go go ahead. On okay, go subject. ahead. Hit the question. Hit the um, question. Let me read through it before I say it. I read it out loud because it might be a, a Ron Burgundy moment if I'm not careful. Okay. Um, uh, Philip says his his subject of his question is inflation. Inflation. Didn't government cause the problem of inflation that they have to turn around and raise the rates and create a labor market shortage as well? I've concluded that the government is always the one that causes inflation. It's kind of a new point. I get it. But somebody got rich during the time when they created a problem that they solved or have to solve. Well, some people do, in fact, get wealthy when there is high inflation. And it depends on how you look at it to say if government's at fault at any given point. Because the government backs our currency. So, in effect, the buck literally stops with them. Uh, could they remove inflation completely by fiat, by the Congress of the United States passing a law to revalue the dollar? Yes, they could. If they did that, it would destroy the value of the dollar, though. The government has a lot less control over the dollar than it used to, for good reason, because the government tends to really mess things up. You you hit the nail on the head, Philip. You may have been using a screwdriver to do it. That's my way of doing it. But you hit the nail on the head. Governments in the past have been the absolute number one cause of inflation. You can look at the collapse of... Uh, 1837, as uh, in the United States, I know that was uh, when people talk about this, they're like, what, what are you talking about, 1837? That was known as the Great Depression before the one in the late 20s and in through the 30s happened. All, all, of the, all of the books, the economics and finance books that you read from the 19th century are referring to the Great Depression as the collapse of 1837. We had another big one in 1873. So 1837, we had absolute runaway inflation, and it was directly due to governmental action. It was a result of the Species Circular by Andrew Jackson. Basically, it said, in order to repay your loans, you have to do it in something that's backed by hard currency, by metal, gold or silver. Uh, that's what specie is. And that just because you you borrowed the, the money in paper yesterday doesn't mean you can pay it back in paper today. And that caused money to be nearly valueless. Uh, it was already becoming valueless, and it, it, and it just launched it up into the stratosphere where specie became uh, deflated. It became too valuable. It, it really caused some nasty things and was a big component to what caused the Civil War later. The reason why he had the power to do that is because he'd recently abolished the Second National Bank. I did a whole treatise on the subject a couple of week, weeks ago, so you can go and, and check that out. Um, the Second National Bank was, was abolished, 
And he took the balance sheet of the Central Bank of the United States, the Second National Bank, and deposited it across a bunch of other banks that were called pet banks at the time. And then the banks went out and gave lots of loans. Uh, and they gave loans on land that didn't have anything on it. And there was a big real estate boom or followed by a massive bust, which caused the value of money to be, I mean, People were literally later papering their walls with money as wallpaper because it wasn't worth anything. So come forward a bit. The Federal Reserve Act said, hey, we need to get the government out of this. And I know the Federal Reserve is a quasi-governmental organization. It's a weird thing because it's helmed mostly by private corporation heads. But at the top of it is people that were appointed by the present president and approved by the Senate. And their job is to regulate banks to make sure they're not overloaning and not underloaning. They can put us into recessions. Their job is to fight inflation or, or deflation, um, both. The government can still add to inflation. There's no doubt about it. But when we look at the pandemic, if, if government caused inflation, it was the Russian government. We had some inflation prior to that. Then, then it was the pandemic. But that wasn't a government. So external events are far more likely to cause inflation today than the government because the government has thoroughly tied its own hands uh, because of major catastrophes in the, in the past. If the government decides that Congress has the right to audit the Fed rather than having third-party auditing companies do it um, and present the audits to the Congress, then we could have some really, really big problems because Congress's math is notoriously not as good as an auditing company, uh, and it tends to be much more politically motivated. We need to keep it out of politics for exactly the reason that you're talking about here, Philip. There is still a, a major component to governmental action and any kind of inflation. There always will be, but it's far less of a role now that we have a strong central bank. It sounds if you like look at inflation, and I'll talk to Philip directly on this, but it, in anyone else, the political rhetoric is that the government somehow caused inflation. Well, if the United States government caused inflation, why is inflation higher in the Eurozone and in the United Kingdom than it is in the United States? I just forwarded you his email so you can see it too. Okay. He, uh, the, the, the government of the United States did not create the high inflation of Europe or a number of other places around the world where they have high inflation right now. Europe did not have stimulus. Uh, so why do they have higher inflation than we do if our government caused inflation? The answer is our government didn't cause the inflation. There's been a lot of good analysis on that. Ben Bernanke, maybe, and, yeah, he, they, they did a great paper on it. Maybe two one hundredths of one percent. That little amount of the inflation can be credited to what the government was doing during the pandemic. But now, let me come in. So the flip side of that, and I know that's a tough, tough one. The flip side, if that in if that stimulus had not occurred, it's a lot harder to disprove a negative or prove a negative. It's very weird. If it hadn't happened, what would happen? Um, and that, those are always tough questions. But if we had not had that stimulus, all of the signals that we've been seeing for the past year slightly longer than a year now, have been recession is coming and then recession is here, but we're not seeing it in the economy. And the reason why we haven't had a recession in the traditional sense, which Europe is going through right now, is we had these extra reserves that came from the stimulus. 
Was the stimulus a component in the inflation? Yes. If it had not occurred, when the would the inflation have occurred anyway? Yes. It did in Europe. It's done it in every other established country with or without stimulus. Our inflation was less than Europe and is still less than Europe. So the without that money, would inflation have been as bad? Nobody can tell you, but it it was worse in Europe. So now back on, to, I, I wanted to interject that because as far as the um, European, the Eurozone in recession right now, the UK struggling hard, their inflation way, way, way up. Was their government partially to blame for that inflation? Probably. You're, you're checking out again, I think, over there. I'm- okay. Um, well, the, the causes of inflation that, that have, and there's been a lot of look at this, particularly since the, in the short period of time since Chairman Powell said that he didn't think that wages were causing it, there's been a lot of looking. And the things that have come up are pretty interesting. One of the biggest issues was during the pandemic, during the lockdown, a lot of people who normally spent money on entertainment and travel didn't spend that money. The stimulus kept that from turning into a recession, but they put the money in the bank at near zero interest rates and they continue to accumulate that money so that today we have a lot more money in the, the, the national average of the amount of money we have in a bank or a money market fund as a percentage of our income is higher than it's been since the 1960s and much higher than it was in 2019. So a couple of things happened. One, people wound up with a lot more money. Sure, they got some stimulus, but when you compare that to the amount of money they didn't spend and stuck in uh, banking accounts and money market funds as savings, it's a drop in the bucket. Now, so they're spending that money now, and they're continuing to spend that money now. And as they came out, there was this surge. We came out of the pandemic, there was this surge of spending, revenge spending, it's called, I think. During the pandemic, they spent a lot of money on goods, and that caused a breakdown in the supply chains combined. When you combine that with the lockdown in China, it really messed things up and prices went up. So people started buying things faster before the price went up. And when the pandemic lockdown was over, they started spending money on services. And the services had laid off a lot of people. And all of a sudden, the hordes came flooding into the restaurants or getting their uh, teeth fixed or whatever they needed to do. And there wasn't enough space. So we have supply and demand causing prices to go up there. And then... But again, again, when you look at it, there's governmental action here. So Philip is right and wrong, just like we all are. The government said, everybody stay home. And then the government said, everybody, you can go out and spend again. So there's a component there, but it's us that was doing the spending. It wasn't the government making money, extra money out there. The government stayed home, said stay home. But when the government stopped saying stay home, people still stayed home. Yeah. Um, so even without the government saying stay home, I think people would, the pandemic was serious business. When when you hear about people, your friends dying and because they can't get into the right ward in the hospital, yeah, that's a little scary. And it, but it was it's really odd when we look at it. And that's why us geeks get excited about this. There was an anticipation that when China stopped its draconian lockdowns, I mean, they had lockdowns that made ours look like free enterprise and yeah. free space and like free wandering. Literally like, welding doors closed. 
in on people's they, houses. They so the, the the Chinese released there was this assumption on Wall Street particularly that the Chinese would do the same thing we had done and they go out and spend a lot of money and their economy would boom. And that brings us right to the present. The yeah, the Chinese economy is not booming. It's slipping backwards. 20% of young educated people under 25 are unemployed. That is astonishing. The Chinese response is we're going to lower interest rates and build and build fake cities again. We're going to build lots of stuff, public works. But you can't get somebody with a master's degree to go out and lay bricks very easily. Yeah. So they're going to stay unemployed. Yeah. And that young, uh, that young, uh, well-educated group of mostly men is going to remain unemployed. China is in a world of hurt right now. Uh, they, their economy is being mismanaged something fierce because they are trying to manage it. Yeah. So what caused inflation? And one of the potentials that came up that I thought was really interesting. I don't know if it's the, it's the, one of the major causes, but it may be companies for the last two years have been reporting increasing earnings, increasing profits on lower sales. Their margins are the highest they have been since we have been measuring these things. So it, it's called greedflation. It could be that corporations, seeing that prices were going up, just continued to push the prices up, despite the fact that people were buying less of their stuff because it made them more profitable. And the good news, as you said in the first hour, is the CPI was just released, and we're now year over year up about 4%. We're not up at that 9% or 6% number anymore. We're at 4%, which is still way above what the Fed wants at 2%. But now we're looking at reasonable inflation rather than unreasonable inflation. We've had 4% inflation over the last several decades at intervals, little intervals of it, and it hasn't caused horrible problems. So we're coming down into more reasonable inflation zones. And I think that's going to continue. Uh, part of, you know, I'm going to quick switch over now to China. And what you, you mentioned just now, the unemployment rate for well-educated people in the youngest set of their working population is up at the 20 plus percent rate. Uh, in the United States, in, it's at the 10% rate, which is pretty normal. That's a low rate for that segment of the population. A lot of them have gone back to school. A lot of them are finishing up this or that in school. And so they're not in the workforce. In China, we're talking about 20% and they're very unemployed. Very. That is a, that's a one fifth of them are not in the workforce or they're in the workforce and trying to work, but not working. So what's causing that? Why is it that we're seeing on this opening up of the economy of, of China that, that they're kind of sputtering. They're not, you know, there's, there's news out there that they're talking about stimulus now of building cities and uh, that people aren't going to live in and putting in roads and so on. The problem with that unemployed population is what we've been talking about for three, four years now. Four years ago, we were saying it's probably a bad idea to set up a a manufacturing facility in China. Uh, their reaction to the trade war has been totally negative. Instead of to a complaining customer, they've been slapping the customer. Okay, come forward, then we have the pandemic. And not only are they being rude to us, they're also completely unreliable. We don't know when we can get stuff from them. We don't know when we won't get stuff from them. So over the past four years, very little uh, external investment in manufacturing has occurred in China. Very little. And most of that occurred three years ago. That was already under contract and already going forward. 
we've been talking about this for quite a and last week i did a segment talking about how in 2018 the uh the, the share of our imports all of the imports from the rest of the world 22 percent came from china and we're down in the low 17 percent mark right now even with the big opening reopening of the chinese economy six months ago 17 percent is a lot less than 22 percent and from their perspective they've just had uh, a near 25 percent drop in their exports to the United States over this short period of time. It's not surprising that they're going to have some unemployment back there. We were their biggest customer. We still are their biggest customer, and we're buying a lot less from them than we were a few years ago. So even opening up and going back to the facilities, I've done segments over the last three years on this subject that as companies have left China, the manufacturing facility, the factory that was there making their stuff didn't stop making the stuff. They just changed the logo and the quality control went out the window. And I mean, I started covering this in detail in 2020 because that's when it started. When you have a company that goes to Vietnam to produce the same thing they were making in China because the labor's cheaper and they, uh, and they have a <laughs> more welcoming government. Well, that facility didn't close in China. And you may have had six factories making yoga pants in China. Well, you just opened up two factories in Vietnam that are bigger factories, but they produce the same amount. Well, now you've got six factories owned by different companies in China that all go into competition with each other and the original brand name, making exactly the same product, only quality control left. All the quality control people left, and they're going to buy the cheapest kind of fabric, and they're not going to check the, the stitches as well. And so when you I mean there's numerous articles on this subject um, on uh, – consumers getting not what they expected. Wait, I bought this same product two years ago and it was great, but now I get it and it doesn't work. It's just completely broken on arrival or the stitches come out the first day I'm wearing it. And that's what we're seeing. It's an increase in the exit. This, the pace is increasing, not decreasing. And that's causing some major issues in China. And they're trying to put a stopgap in there of hiring a bunch of people to go make cities that their population is now not keeping up with the city growth. And there were cities that they made in the global financial crisis, 2008 and 2009, that still aren't populated and they're falling apart. Uh, so there's, there's a limit to how that stimulus can actually work. There already is a massive debt issue in China, and it's going to get worse if they're stimulating real estate development because the people that are paying for that indirectly was the external manufacturing and the exports. Well, the external manufacturing is moving relatively rapidly away from China, and the export market is drying up at the same time. China's been trying to manage too hard, and I think the cattail theory is in effect here. Well, it's the, the things I've been reading about what's going on in China suggest that their faith in their government was crushed by the lockdown. In other words, there was a this is just hypothesis from people who speak Mandarin and who have lived in China and, and talked to the people there and 
This is their general take as I have gotten it. Prior to the pandemic, they accepted the restrictions on communication, the the actions of the government. And the issue is, I don't care about all that stuff as long as I'm reasonably prosperous. I have plenty to eat. I'm doing very well. We have plenty of jobs. The social contract. Cool. The social right. contract with the government hasn't been broken. We're all good. And and the, the, the purpose of the government in China, in the minds of the people, is to not allow chaos to occur, not allow riots or warlords or keep everything smooth because fundamental to Mandarin speaking Chinese people is a deep-seated fear of chaos and warlordism because in their recent past, they have had that. And when the riots started occurring because of the lockdowns and people were going hungry or being served rotten, being Rotten food was being delivered to them during the lockdowns by the government. It appears to have crushed their faith in the government. And because of that, they are not spending. They are socking away money because they are scared. And that's Something like this could happen again. Deflation rather than inflation. Mm-hmm. And, and they are running into, they're running into a very serious problem. The consumer spending has not picked back up. And at the same time, China has managed to do two things to the rest of the world. One, they showed themselves to be an unreliable supplier. That is fatal. Secondly, they are making loud noises about going to war with the United States, Yeah, which would be fatal to their economy. It wouldn't so be good for ours foreign, either, but fatal for theirs. Foreign investment is drying up in China. <laughs> and the end result of that is their growth rate is th- there's there's nobody new there's nobody to hire matter of fact there people are getting laid off who are educated and in the past china has responded to this by building entire cities hiring lots and lots of people to build roads and cities but if you because got the a majority of their people at that time were not well educated right if you they have a workers. master's in business administration there's no way that you're going to go get a bricklayer job well, there might be, but that's that's going to be the end of the world, in effect. That's that's depression-level work. And it's the reality is that the Chairman Xi, there's an experiment going on. I've talked about this before. Putin and Xi and some others, Ergodon, are trying an experiment that says if the if 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 all control is centralized, everything works better, they believe. If you just have a central control of everything and the economy is controlled centrally out of one place by one person. Everything works better and you don't have the crazy chaos that we're experiencing in the United States right now that we call democracy. They say, and again and again, they have all three have made speeches that says democracy don't work, doesn't work. Iran is saying the same thing. And they are tend they tend to be allied with each other because they believe that democracy doesn't work and autocracy works really, really well. So they're going to make it work. And they are discovering something that has been repeated through history, and that is democracy and free enterprise may be horrifically chaotic. And it definitely needs some regulation. But like Sir Winston Churchill said when he spoke to the United States Congress, democracy is the worst form of government he can think of except of all the, except for all the others. And that's where we are. Right. And, and it, this experiment's going on and I think we're winning. One of the facets here, and we talked about this at the time, there was a propaganda coup from the Chinese. The Chinese government, the CCP, became extra popular for the first two years of the pandemic. Why? Well, because they were broadcasting all of the American deaths from COVID and they were preventing it in China. Well, how were they preventing it? They were just shutting down everything. One test, one area, shut down everything within 100 miles. Everything shuts down. And they did it. It was very, very, very hardcore, but they were able to put out the propaganda by showing body bags in the United States. They essentially avoided much of that when we eventually got to the point where we were vaccinated 
and opening up and and those of us that didn't get vaccinated had it enough times that we're treating it much much more uh, easily than at the very beginning of the pandemic um, and we when we went back to work we went out and headed you know nobody can keep us down that's what all of that weird patchwork of who gets shut down and not shut down and whether or not you get a ticket or don't get a ticket for wearing masks or not wearing masks or whatever. That The chaos that we had here was nothing like the very genteel and orderly Europe or the draconian lockdowns of China. We had something totally different. It was weird. You could have gotten a ticket in one place for $1,000, walk five meters in another direction and be congratulated for not wearing a mask. So we weren't, we weren't orderly at all in this. But that led to our economy doing well. The price was that more people got sick here. And a lot of people died. Uh, and the cost isn't something you can point at any single place or because it was all of the different places handling it. It's very strange to think about it that way. Well, now China, in the middle of being rude, to the rest of the world uh, in there. We don't, you're, you're our customer, but we get to dictate the terms. And that's something that's happened over the past 10 years or so. Uh, when Chairman Xi took over 11 years ago, there was a very, we are your partner. We're going to make your business great and we're going to benefit from it at the same time feeling. Uh, Chairman Hu was, uh, uh, was amazing for that. He built bridges and he brought people together and he, and then Chairman Xi came in and he said, yeah, we'll still do that, sort of, but I need to make sure that politics, the party, comes out to the center, not wealth. So there was a transition back to party first, wealth and comfort second, and in the process, they became harder to work with. And he didn't want to be pushed around, even though if you're making a lot of money from someone and they come in and they say... I want this to be this color instead of that color. You should say, sure, we'll just charge you a little more for it, but here you go. Instead, when we came to him and said, hey, you're charging too much and your steel is too cheap for the rest of us, they got into an argument with their biggest customer and the rest of the world at the same time. Now, not that what we were doing was great because we were arguing with everybody, but their response to that, we're still the big customer. We're a net importer from them by far. We import a lot more from China than we export to China. Uh, and that was part of the reason for the trade war. Hey, you're, you're treating us not so good anymore. And that was from the top. And right at the same time that was going on, they're cracking down on innovation. The people that were leading the charge to make their country more productive and more innovative got removed all of their efforts at, at bringing in intellectual property controls, yes, you invented it, it's yours, went out the window too. They were making good progress in that direction. And they turned around and went backwards really fast. In fact, they instituted rules that said that if your factory was producing there and then you stopped producing and left unemployed people, then the intellectual property no longer belonged to you, even if it did. And this was... These were fiat rules that were made in the last three years. So I think we've talked enough on that subject. But it, what it does is it says that China is a near-term threat militarily and economically only. If you're out 15 or 20 years, the threat level from them as far as an emerging economy is much, much less. Their population has begun to shrink their 
an oldering population, not a youngering population. And that leads to a lot of other problems down the road. And they're not, they're make they're making bad decisions. Uh, or I think we're the thing I mentioned. Go ahead. The th- the, wait a minute. The thing I mentioned earlier, the, the saber rattling about going to war with the United States, right. which they've Taiwan. Been, yeah. You'll notice that they have in the last couple of weeks suddenly become more receptive to speaking to somebody from the United States. Um, the, uh, and the secretary think, of state is there now. Yeah, I don't think that's a coincidence. I think they they realized that their economy was at risk and their stability was at risk, and they've decided to back off at least temporarily. But it, they've but shown they, themselves to be untrustworthy now. That's that's the big one. Uh, you can buddy up to the United States government all you want to, guys, but unlike the, China, the United States government does not dictate broadly who we do business with, except right. in high-tech issues that relate to defense. That's and the result of that decisions. is that Wall Street has reached two interesting, unpleasant conclusions. One, the rebound that happened in the United States is not going to happen in China because their government is untrustworthy. Two, China, China's government has made them as a, has made companies in China an unsafe and unreliable source of labor and product. So we're seeing and manufacturing you, decline in the, China, and that's, going, that's the result. That's what puts businesses out of business in the United States and anywhere else in the world. If China is a business, and the chairman of the board and the CEO is Chairman Xi, then uh, they just messed in their nest. And you combine that with a aging, shrinking population, and it's extremely dangerous situation for China. And the point is, if their economy does contract, if they do run up with the problem, the knee-jerk go-to reaction is to declare a foreign enemy and attack all over the history books and all over the world. That's this probably the scariest thing. If China ever feels like they have nothing to lose, that's why we need to re-engage with China if we can't at the governmental level, particularly. If they ever feel like they have nothing to lose, that's when countries go to war. Uh, And it's, by the way, a minor miracle that Russia did not attack Europe at some point during their decline before their, the collapse of the communist party in Russia. We can only hope such a thing would happen in China, but we'll just have to wait and see. One of the reasons, by the way, that Putin is attacking Ukraine at this moment in time is exactly the same thing that's going on in China, only it's earlier in Russia. They have an aging population. They have a shrinking population. They have a shrinking GDP, uh, they're getting they, the either opposite, now or you'll never do it. Right. They're getting the opposite results for their e- economy and their aging population. Now, I, I think this is a good time to step away from China for a moment, though it probably sure. will be in the next conversation as well. We're going to talk about the global economy. We've mentioned that yeah. the Eurozone is in is in recession right now and that China's having a tough time and the United States is doing its thing and it's really weird and confusing, but it seems to be growing still. Okay, what's going on there? Well, the Federal Reserve in the United States let, met this week and they said, we're not raising rates. We're going to pause that this month, maybe next month or ne- next meeting. Uh, maybe the meeting after that will raise rates again. We'll see, but probably we're not going to do it now. European Central Bank at the same time that, you know, same couple of weeks that they announced within a week of announcing that they're in a recession raised rates they're still raising rates over there and china they lowered rates all in the same week which says that even in a global economy what happened with our changing of supply chains is that we're decoupled a lot 
as far as how the economies are subsisting. China forcibly put walls around its economies, and some effect of that is that our growth is not carrying them forward. And Germany sends a lot of stuff to China, and China is suffering. Germany is a net exporter to China, by the way. That's one of those things that shocks people. Uh, What do you mean? How are they doing that? Well, they send all the machines that make stuff in the factories in China, or a lot of them, a large amount of them, are made in Germany because they make really good manufacturing tools. Um, Their power tools are right off the charts great. Uh, So are ours. So when you look at construction in China, the the top firms are using Caterpillar. They're not using the Chinese brands because they last a lot longer. Anyway, that's uh, what I'm pointing out here is that the world is becoming unsynced. We're not as synchronized economically as we used to. Uh, You look like you are raring to go on this particular topic. Well, there's an interesting backdrop to what you just said. Angela Merkel. Angela. Who was raised. Angela. 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 You Mer- speak German. You, you, should, you should have that one down. Anyway, she was raised in East Germany, and, and she was taught the communist doctrine and all of that, and she became prime minister. Chancellor, I'm sorry. Chancellor of the United Germany. And she firmly believed and stated again and again and again that the best way to deal with Russia and China is to engage them in lots of commerce and in doing so, they would be defused and they wouldn't be a threat to the world. She was, by the way, incorrect. But she she basically said, let's not spend money on defense. Let's engage in commerce with China and Russia. And Russia, yeah. And you notice she's gone. But the the point is, that was an experiment too. And the reality is engaging in a lot of commerce to satisfy a dictator is not necessarily a good idea. Agreed. We need to learn we need to learn from that because we have been bit by that particular snake on or that dog on many an occasion in the past. Uh, and we probably ought to get our eyes open and our heads up and think about the fact that do trying to support a dictator because the dictator is better than the alternative um, may not be the best idea. It still defines a lot of our foreign policy because there aren't democratic alternatives in many, many, many places. But when you're going in to make a business and you want a a partner that can manufacture for you and save you money on that, you want them to be reliable and you want them to be in a place where they put a great deal of respect on your word. And China has gotten arrogant. So where are we going instead? Well, we're going to Vietnam. Well, that's governmental. It's got some problems going there. Uh, we're going to Thailand. Well, there was there's a military coup. Uh, a, a junta is still in charge there. Uh, they're making mild hints that maybe someday they might go back to uh, democracy as long as they won't have to leave the office to do it. Um, so you've got two countries that we're moving business to rapidly that are not better governmentally. They're just more reliable right now because they're poorer, kind of like China was when we went to them. (laughs) There is a lot of wisdom in what you just said. A lot of wisdom in what you just said. Yeah. So in India, there's a lot of corruption. There are massive structural problems economically and governmentally in India, but they're still better than Thailand and Vietnam and China. They have a democratic government there. Is it problematic? Is it one I would want to go and live in? Absolutely not. I visit's fine, but it 
India is an amazing place, and it's it's harder to talk about India as a big picture than it is to talk about the United States as a big picture because the difference between San Francisco and the bayous of Louisiana is a is a big shift. The difference between the rich and the poor in India is orders of magnitude different. It is so, so, so different. So there's this concept of we can train people to do things in India the way we trained people to do things in China, but eventually they're going to be wealthy enough and trained enough in India that they're going to have the same sorts of things pop up. And as long as we have agreements that we didn't have with China, that's okay. The ultra good news on all of this before we go to commercial is that Automation is likely to step in where cheap labor was for the past 25 years. That we will be an automated society and it's not hugely in the distant future for us to have machines in our house that make our clothes and that you, I mean, that you just buy the stuff and stick it in there and it makes your clothes for you. And when you're done with your clothes, you put them back in there and it makes new clothes for you or launders them. These are things that will happen. Um, We're all worried about AI and, and other things. It's good things to worry about. But the reality is that we are likely to benefit greatly from the technology innovations that are coming. And I agree with you completely. And we're about out of time. This is the Personal Wealth Coach with Jeff and Jake. McClure. Uh, this is the personal wealth coach, and we do make uh, other statements than really bad puns about songs. Uh, we are uh, a, a finance program, as you would probably guess from the personal wealth coach being our title. The personal wealth coach is not just the title of the program. It's also the name of an SEC registered investment advisory firm. All right. Well, does that mean that the SEC likes us? What would you say to that, sir? I would say that the SEC is professionally dislikes almost everyone. Right. That is no implication of the SEC's approval just because we're registered with them. Why is the radio program and the firm named the same thing? Because we have to give this disclosure no matter what it is, and it's less disclosurable. It takes less time to do if it's just the same name. So we've been doing this program here uh, on this stu- in, on this station, fourteen hundred AM in Temple, since nineteen ninety six, we've been doing this a long time, and we haven't been paid for it ever. Uh, we also Man. have not ever paid for it, so we've been doing this a long, long time. And the whole idea is education. We do advertise as a firm for on the studio, uh, on the channel for this radio program. We don't actually advertise for our firm. We're advertising for the radio program. So what we're saying is that this is educational and we do occasionally get business from it, but our purpose here is truly education. That being said, it's not advice. Advice would be if I knew who you were, if the other bald guy, Jeff, knew who you were and we were able to have a private conversation with you about things in your best interest versus broadcasting to everyone. So we're going to be talking about education, which is why we do the program to begin with. So those two disclosures are really one. And having said that, do you deem to tell us another disclosure? Yes. The information we present on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. 
and he really can't get through the week without that. I think right. uh, if you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually give individually, uh, individually crafted and customized advice based on what people are trying to achieve. That's generally and portfolio management and portfolio management. And that's generally for people with higher net worths, but we make exceptions occasionally. Um, and so you can contact us locally voicemail available during the weekend, but actual real live people, no phone tree during the week at two, five, four, nine, four, seven, 11, 11. You can reach that line tool free at one, eight hundred nine, one, four, seven, five, two, six. That's eight hundred nine, fourteen plan. Uh, you can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. There's a contact form. You can use emails, Jeff or Jake at tpwc.com. There are uh, recordings of the radio program going back years, newsletters going back decades, uh, and you can find us wherever podcasts are given. Um, thank you very much for listening on a nice Saturday morning. And until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.